Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with us to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. That can be found on the Pew Bible on pages 896 and 897, or in the following Jesus Bible on page 1,154. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works." that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go across for children's worship, they can line up at the door, and Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah will take them across the way. Here they come from the four corners of the earth. Throughout the centuries, the people of Israel have had horror upon horror poured out on them. From the captivity in Egypt to the Holocaust, history and humanity seem bent against them. And there was one severe trial that the people of Israel endured of which you may not be aware, unless you're a history buff or you have close friends or family who are Jewish. In 168 B.C., so 168 years before Jesus was born, the Seleucid Empire, uh, which was a Greek empire that had its capital in modern-day Turkey, 
The Seleucid Empire not only overthrew Jerusalem in a genocidal fashion, but they also desecrated the temple. Under the direction of the king Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes, the Seleucids sacrificed a pig on the altar, which, of course, was an unclean animal, and then forced the priests to eat it. They set up an idol to Zeus in the altar, in, in, in the temple, and also an altar to Zeus. And the writer of First Maccabees called this the abomination of desolation. In the end, Antiochus made it illegal to be a practicing Jew anywhere in his empire. Men, women, boys, and girls were slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem, and law-observant Jews were driven into hiding. It really was a nightmare. Uh, for the people of Israel. But four years later, in 164 BC, a revolution happened. Judas Maccabeus, who was a law observant Jew who had been hiding outside of Jerusalem, Maccabeus rallied the people of Israel to overthrow their pagan overlords, and in the end, Israel drove them, drove them out and won their independence from the Seleucid Empire. They cleansed the temple, and they were self governing. In a sense, it was a great day for Israel. And it was that event, the Maccabean revolt, or the, and the consecration or rededication of the temple that occurred, the reestablishment of Israel's self-governance, it's all of this that is celebrated every year at the Feast of Dedication, which is also known as Hanukkah. And in today's text, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple during that eight-day festival. So that's the background of the celebration that's going on in Jerusalem in our text. Let's look again with that knowledge of verses 22 through 24. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So why are they asking Jesus this question at this time? It makes a ton of sense. What are they thinking about? They're thinking about Judas Maccabeus leading a revolt against an occupying enemy. And who is garrisoned right around the corner? The Romans, right? And many of the Jewish people expected the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah or anointed one. They expected the Christ to be a revolutionary just like Maccabeus. So it makes sense that they would ask Jesus this question on this day. And so they tell Jesus, stop being coy. Just tell us if you were the Christ, the Messiah of God. But here's what I don't want you to miss. The Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, actually paints a picture of the good life according to the Bible. We started talking last week about the good life and the pictures that are painted by the world of the good life. Well, in the Feast of Dedication, in Hanukkah, you actually get a picture of the true good life. And so these people, as they come to Jesus asking this question, they are celebrating and they are longing for the same things that we should be longing for as well. So what is the good life according to the Bible? Well, the good life for which we truly long consists of three things. Communion with God, worship, and holiness. That's it. You may not think that's a good life for which you really long, but that's it. Communion with God, worship, and holiness. And all three of these things can be seen being celebrated in Hanukkah. Well, how do I get that from Judas Maccabeus 
and from Hanukkah. Well, let, let, let's think about the temple because the temple really was the hub of this celebration. It's called the Feast of Dedication because the temple was rededicated at that time. And Israel's temple was a picture of the life that we were made for. How so? Well, think back to the beginning of the Bible. When God made Adam and his wife, they lived with God in communion with God. And what did they live for? They lived for God's purposes, for God's glory, and he provided everything that they needed in their life of serving him. But when Adam and his wife sinned, what happened? They were cut off. Humankind was cut off from God's presence, and they were thrust out into a world of want, a world of brokenness and futility and sickness and death and pain. And the entire Bible, if you want to know what the Bible is about, the whole story of the Bible is about God getting us back to him. God aiming to fix the schism between humanity and himself. This has always been God's redemptive aim, to get us back to him. And this absence of God in our lives, of knowing God, of knowing his plans for us, of knowing his love and approval, his presence, this absence is the great desire of our hearts that undergirds all of our other desires. The good life is to be back with God, to live with him. And that's what the temple represented. This physical building in the middle of Jerusalem was the place where God lived on earth. And his people lived with him there. He was really there in the building. Now, this wasn't quite a return to Eden, but it was a step in the right direction. It was one step closer to the good life. Now, when you think of Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem, what activities do we usually think of happening in there? Well, gathering for worship no doubt. And probably before you think of that, you think about the sacrifices. Like at the heart of the altar, uh, at the, the temple was an altar. And why did Israel make sacrifices in the first place? Because the law said that the only way to be restored to God, the only way to have our sin forgiven was for innocent blood to be shed in our place. The cost for sin is death. And so these sheep, these cattle, these birds are sacrificed as a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. But the end goal of it all was for you to have a relationship with God. And that's what the temple really was about. The temple was a place to be restored to communion with God. But when you think about the good life, when you think about the things that the world wants, what they think the good life is, a lot of the time you can see a connection point back to here. Like everybody wants to experience the otherworldly, right? Uh, they want to, uh, to, to glimpse into the transcendent, the beautiful, the awe-inspiring things in the world. And all that is no doubt a desire to know God, right? We have that sensation because we've been separated from the one who is truly transcendent and beautiful. But I think there's something much more elementary than that. Why is communion with God the most essential element of the good life? Here's why. We all long to have a good, strong, and unfailing Father. Happy Father's Day. I didn't plan this. I preached on hell on Mother's Day and our need of a good father on Father's Day. If you ask for people to define the good life, many of them will say something about love, you know, 
The good life is to, to love and be loved, right? Or maybe a cynical person will say, it's better to have loved and to have lost than to have never loved at all, some such, right? Or they might say, learn to love yourself. Listen to this beautiful verse, though, from the book of Zephaniah that I think is much more true. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is what we want. A father who looks at us in our brokenness, who looks at us in our sin and says, I approve you. I love you. I delight in you. He sings over his children. This is what we want. We want a good, perfect, and loving father. This is the good life that you were made for. Yes, you were made for relationships with other people. We see that even before sin. He said, for Adam, it's not good that he's alone. Other people, though, can only meet your needs to a certain extent. Even the best fathers fail, right? Our deepest desire to know and be known, our most fundamental urge for intimacy and connection and approval and praise, it is all a desire to know God and to be known by God. And when he knows you, that he would then, in his knowledge of you, approve you and love you and delight in you. This is what we want, the God who sings over us and quiets our hearts. That's what the temple was about. Being in our heavenly Father's smiling presence. Experiencing his love because of a substitutionary sacrifice. But that's not all that the temple was about. The temple was also a place to see, enjoy, and celebrate the splendor of God as Adam could. And that's what worship is. That is the nature of worship. So why do we have, as humans, this insatiable desire for joy? Why can we never get enough? Why can you never be elated enough? Why, when we experience one thrill, do we suddenly need a greater one? It's because we have yet to experience that joy and splendor that is beyond all of our imagining. And it doesn't matter the power of your earthly experiences, pleasures, and joys. We have at our core a desire to see God, to be astonished by God, to be enraptured by the beauty and power of who he is, to see, enjoy, and celebrate God himself. When I think about the things that have been most amazing to me in this life— Do you know what they are? They're usually things that would threaten to kill me or someone dear to me. Niagara Falls is terrifying when you think about the sheer power of it. But when you see it and you behold it in this toddling little boat, the boat that looks so big when you get on it, until you get out there near the falls, you're overwhelmed with this awe, with the beauty And the raging power. I can't get too close to that. Hurricane Ida. Shoot, man, that one got real close to to smiting me, didn't it, right? Don't stay at Todd's house during a hurricane. It's bad bad juju. But as that storm was rolling in, what was I doing? I'm on the back porch like an idiot 
Look at this wind. <laughs> Listen to those sounds. Do you hear those trees? This could kill me. There's something powerful about it. When my children were born, that could kill my wife. Childbirth is very dangerous, but it's this amazing, terrifying thing that's occurring. There is no greater thrill than beholding the horror of the burning, holy glory of God and then to be invited to come closer. That we might peer into his infinite light and be overwhelmed by his beauty. That is what we're restless for. That is the life that we want. That is the joy and beauty and transcendence. That's what we want. And the temple was a place where God's people were invited into communion with that God to do just that, to see a little glimmer of him and to celebrate and enjoy him. And in all of this, we find a word that sums all of it up, and it's the word holiness. The temple showed that Israel was set apart. That's another way to define the word holy. They were set apart to God for a special purpose. And again, isn't that what we all want? You may not think you want to be holy, but to be set apart, to be special, to be unique, we all want that. We all want to feel beautiful, handsome, remarkable, right? We want to have a sense that our lives have purpose. And that desire at its core is a desire to be holy, to be set apart by God to himself for a specific purpose. God made us for all this, to live with him, to know he, how he has made us, to be special and distinct, and through our communion with him, to become like him. To live out his purposes, his character, and his beauty on the earth. And all of this was being celebrated by the Jews at Hanukkah. So they're celebrating that God chose to live among them. They're celebrating that they could worship God in this temple that Judas Maccabeus took back. They're celebrating that they were set apart from the nations as his people. So when they come to Jesus and demand to know if he's the Christ, what are they asking? Jesus, have you come to give us the good life we've been waiting for? Is the time now? And you, you might think, if you've not read this text before, well, this is it. This is his time to shine. The people are ready. But what does he say to them? Look at verse 24 again. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So when Jesus responds this way at the Feast of Dedication, things got real cold. And it's not just because it's winter. Everything that they were celebrating, everything that they were longing for, all their desires to commune with God, to worship God, to be holy, Jesus tells them that they have none of it. That their celebration is functionally a farce because Jesus and the Father are one. So do you want to commune with the Father? You have to know Jesus. Do you want to worship the Father? 
then you have to worship Jesus. Do you want to be holy? It can only be had through knowing Jesus and living like him. Jesus and the Father are one. You can't know the Father apart from Jesus. So yes, he's the Christ. He is the Messiah of God, but he's not Judas Maccabeus part two. No, Jesus came to fulfill what the temple represented and to be something greater than the temple. He was a temple replacement, so to speak. And at the end of this text, what does Jesus do? He walks away from Jerusalem and the temple. He walks away. This is really reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets who would say something and then they would demonstrate it through some kind of prophetic action. And when he leaves Jerusalem and goes out into the wilderness, that's what we're seeing. He's leaving. He's walking away. Let's look at it. Verses 40 through 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And what happened? Many believed in him there. So in Jerusalem and in the temple, Jesus found no one who believed in him. They wanted the good life, but they didn't trust him. They didn't want him. The crowds just couldn't wrap their heads around the the exclusivity of what Jesus was saying, that he was the only way to God and the only way to have the life we were made for. They didn't believe him. They weren't his sheep. And so they wouldn't pursue the good life that comes from knowing Jesus. Instead, they spent their lives pursuing other attempts to get the good life. Again, they weren't confused about what the good life was. They were just trying the wrong means to get there. And so how about you? How can you have the life that you were made for? How can you have communion with God, worship holiness? How can you get back what humanity has lost? Our restless pursuit of the good life will only ever find its rest in Jesus. But we don't seek it there. We seek it in so many other places. In the front of your worship guide, grab it and turn with me there. I have a quote from Augustine of Hippo. It describes our, our situation so very well. If you're not familiar with Augustine, he's a early, early bishop of the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the Church Catholic. And in many ways, uh, his theology kind of laid the foundation for Calvin and Reformed thinking. Uh, and in the first chapter of his seminal book, Confessions, he said this, Man, being a part of thy creation, desires to praise thee. Man who bears about with him his mortality, the witness of his sin, even the witness that thou resistest the proud. Yet man, this part of thy creation desires to praise thee. Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself. And our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless because we seek the good life through pursuits that are not Jesus. This crowd ostensibly knew what the good life was. They weren't chasing after false visions of the good life. They wanted communion with God. They wanted worship. They wanted holiness. But how did they seek it? Not through Jesus. They sought it through ostensibly good religious things. They sought it through temple worship. 
They sought it through law-keeping. They sought it through zeal for Israel. They sought it through piety. But there's a problem that none of those things are Jesus. These were religious, scrupulous, Bible-memorizing people who sought the good life in good-sounding things, but none of them pursued Jesus. And the question is, do we do the same thing? Last week, we talked about the world's false visions of the good life that we may pursue. This is different. So some people, yes, deceived by the world, chase false versions of the good life through the world's means. But some of us seek the true good life through wrong but seemingly justified pursuits. Okay, so like what? What are some things we could be trying to get the good life through that are not Jesus? I'll give you some examples inspired directly from the text. First is keeping the law. Either God's or laws of our own creation. So if I were to ask you, how can you have communion with God? How can you have true, transcendent, joy-filled worship? How can you have holiness? If I were to ask your vision of the good life, how many of you would respond with a list of activities that you must do on a daily basis? How often I find myself assuming that if I can just read my Bible for a certain amount of time every day, then I'll have communion with God, right? Then I'll have true worship. Then I'll have personal holiness. How often we think that we'll achieve all these things through rigorous tithing, through theological precision, and careful avoidance of the world and its pleasures. But none of those activities is Jesus. So this is a classic false flag operation of the enemy to get you to pursue religious inclinations and religious scrupulosity rather than pursuing Jesus. Our restless pursuit of the good life will only ever find its rest in Jesus. But you will never find the good life through keeping the law, whether God's law or one of your own creation. I see looks of confusion on many of your faces, and that's okay. I'm going to keep going. This will all start to come together. Others may seek the true good life through zeal for a certain kind of society or a certain kind of church or a certain kind of community. And this is very similar to law-keeping. The person who seeks the good life through this zeal for a certain kind of church or community or society, they're less concerned about personal law-keeping, the things I've got to do to make sure my communion with God is right, and they're more concerned about being different from the world being consecrated, dedicated, separate, distinct, different, holy in a way. If the society that I inhabit could just be a certain way, or if I could be in a church that's just the way it should be, or if I could be in a, in a relationship with a group of people, a community that embodied what we were all supposed to be embodying, if I could just be separate from all those false visions of the good life and get away from those other sheep, in fact, if we could drive out the Seussids and the Romans, then we'd have the good life. Guess what? Jesus ain't there. The good life's not there. Now, you may say, so I'm not supposed to read the Bible? I'm not supposed to pray or tithe or surround myself with Christian friends? You know that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't let those things become a substitute 
for knowing and pursuing Jesus. You can turn the Bible into an idol. You can rely on your spiritual disciplines more than you rely on Jesus. You can turn your church and your Christian friendships into an idol. You can love conservative reform theology more than you love Jesus. And none of those things will give you the good life. Only Jesus will. Those things were all designed by God to lead you to Jesus, not to be an ends unto themselves. Just like the temple wasn't meant to be an ends unto itself. It was meant to point you to a greater thing, to a greater sacrifice, to a greater communion that can only be found in Christ. And so the only pursuit that will give you the good life is to pursue Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to go back to chapter 10 to see in depth what that looks like. But in closing... Let's see from today's text why Jesus is the only source of the good life. Why he is the only one who can give you the life that you need. What's so special about Jesus? Well, Jesus can give us the good life because of his unique identity as the son of God. That's how he can give us the good life. Who is he after all? Let's look back at our text. Verse 27 through 30, and then we'll jump forward to verse 37. Verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He goes into a long defense of this statement. If you're curious about that Psalm 82 quote, we can talk about that offline. It's interesting, but it's just long, so I'm, I'm going to skip past that. Verse 37, he says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God in human flesh who came to earth so that we might be restored to God the Father, that we might know God again, that we might worship him in spirit and truth, that we might be made holy through his sacrifice on the cross. There's no other person like that. He's the only human being without sin, and Jesus' identity as the sinless son of God gives him the corner on this market of giving you the good life. And what must we do to have the good life? To have the good life, we must believe what Jesus said and repent. That is, to reject all other pursuits of the good life. So again, what happened at the end of the text when Jesus got out into the wilderness? Look at verse 40 through 42 again. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. When these people went to Jesus out in the wilderness, what were they leaving behind? Of what were they repenting with their feet? Repentance is fleeing from other sources of the good life to Jesus. What are they repenting of? What did they turn from to Jesus? They turned their backs on Jerusalem. They turned their backs on the temple. These were not the way to the good life anymore. So how many of us need to repent of our religious scrupulosity? How many of us need to repent of our passionate law-keeping? How many of us need to repent of our zeal for Reformed theology or theological conservatism? 
How many of us need to repent of our hatred for the world and our desire to set ourselves apart because these have become idols that took the place of Jesus in our hearts? Was this not Jesus' indictment of the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2? Jesus said this to them. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is so easy to do, to substitute good things, sometimes even great things, for the greatest one. To treat the temple like it's Jesus. Unless you think you don't struggle with this temptation, how anxious do you become when you're unable to keep your own laws? How fearful do you become when you fail to be as you ought to be or when you find yourself like the world that you oppose so much? Or conversely, how much pride do you feel when you're just crushing it (laughs) compared to others or compared to your past self and you really feel great about your spiritual life because you've got all these things down pat? But when we pursue Jesus, knowing him, Loving him, trusting him, following him. When we pursue Jesus to the exclusion of all other pursuits of the good life, when he is our singular love, our singular provision, when he is our all in all, what do we find? We find rest for our restless hearts. That even when we fail, even when we fall short, we're in his father's hand. Augustine was right. Our hearts will always be restless until we find our rest in Jesus. And how many of you are seeking the good life, the peace and purpose and love and approval and meaning and holiness that you were made for? How many of you are seeking the good life in anything and everything but Jesus? Perhaps you're even seeking it through good things that are still not Jesus. If you need me to paint the picture... I see there's still confusion. It's very easy. I talk about spiritual disciplines all the time. Chris has a, has a discipleship group. He's been teaching on spiritual disciplines too. We want you to read your Bible. We want you to pray. We want you to do all these good things. But what can happen is it becomes mechanistic. And we fail to pursue Christ in it. He gave us this book that we would know him. That we would love him. That we would pursue him. Prayer is a means of engaging with him in relationship. But sometimes, through force of habit, or just our flesh's, our, you know, natural idol-making capabilities, that these become a practice fully separate from knowing Christ and pursuing him. And we see it in our own lives when we love our religion more than we love our Savior. And uh, every Christian denomination and group does this. We have to check ourselves We're going to chew on this more practically next week, but for now, just meditate on this. Chase after Jesus. Pursue him. He's a person. He's not a principle. He's not a practice or a process. He's God in human flesh. He's the Christ, not the kingdom, not the church, not the Bible. He is everything. And your restless pursuit of the good life will only ever find its rest in him. So do you have him? Or perhaps, better stated, does he have you? Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, help us. In our flesh, our tendency is to make everything into an idol, to seek the good life in everything but you. And so protect us. And I think of my friends here, my brothers and sisters. Many of them uh, have known you for a very long time and have trusted you. May they never miss the powerful intimacy you offer us. May we be able to sense your presence and to be filled with joy in you. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's seeking the good life in anything but Jesus, I pray that quickly they would see that it's just dust. It's nothing. It's empty. And that they would find their rest, their joy, their holiness, their meaning, everything in you and you alone. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.